1 Samuel 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socho in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socho and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let, me, let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had, command, as, had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up the lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will examine his family from Texas in, in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him and what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for a man who kills him. When Eliab, 
David's eldest brother heard him speaking with the man. He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine." Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by spear, sword or spear, that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and stuck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stuck in, sank into his forehead, and his face, he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath, and he killed him. He cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The dead were strewn along the Sharon Road to Gath and Ekron. 
When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. This week was the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. On Tuesday night, Tuesday evening, I found myself with three of our sons in a hall in Wally Range with 100 Chinese people eating a banquet and watching the celebrations on a huge screen. And it was quite an experience. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm not talking about the food. I'm talking about the grand military parade. This was the biggest ever parade that the country had ever held on the streets of Beijing. Just imagine it. President Xi made a speech and then he stood in a huge car which slowly drove him round the streets of central Beijing. 15,000 troops were marching in a ground column. 600 vehicles were poised in the vehicle military column with missiles uh, on them ready to go. 180 aircraft flew by in formation in the flypass column. Over 110,000 people marched in the civil column. Everyone was immaculately dressed, trained and ready for action. Sergeants barked commands, hands saluted, guns were raised. Apparently it took six months to rehearse and prepare for this parade. President Xi stood in the huge car and he surveyed all that lay before him. Guns, tanks, missiles, bombs, drones, soldiers. He is said to be the tallest ever Chinese leader. A big guy. And he was displaying a world-beating army. And it took over two hours. Now, during this meal, a Chinese man who I know sidled over to me and whispered in my ear, what do you think of that? You see that? It's muscle. You know what they're saying? They're saying, America, don't mess with us. <laughs> now, turn back the clock 3,000 years to ancient Israel, and here we find two armies gathered in the sun on opposite hills, and in the valley between them is a man-monster. His name is Goliath, he's from a place called Gath, and he's the biggest, meanest, best-armed warrior of the Iron Age. He's a display of muscle, armor, and deadly force. Some things don't change much. Now, the story of David and Goliath is a perennial favorite. It's perhaps one of the best-known stories in the Bible. The way it's told is a little bit like Jack and the Giant Killer. You know how it goes, the plucky youth who brings down the big bad giant. But there's a problem with that. It makes it sound like we're dealing with a legend or a fairy tale. But the Bible doesn't present this episode in those terms at all. The Bible presents this as a key moment in the history of redemption. 
In chapter 16, last week, we read how Samuel was sent by God to anoint a new king. Anointing was the pouring of oil over the head uh, in the presence of God. God chose David, the youngest of eight sons, a youth who is not considered king material because he's the smallest brother. But this David is the Lord's anointed one, an unlikely choice. He's literally the Messiah, or in the Greek language, the Christ, because he's anointed. And now in chapter 17, right after that, he faces one of his biggest tests, a critical moment, how will he save the people? So this is all about the Lord's anointed king, the Christ, saving the people of God. It is not a bedtime story. But you know, there's actually a deeper level uh, where we get this story badly wrong. And it's the way we often teach it in church, at Sunday school, or in sermons. We tend to read David and Goliath as if it is all about me. In this reading, the moral is, I have to be like David. I have to see the giants in my life, put faith in God, and defeat them. If only I could step up like David, then I could defeat my personal Goliath. But that reading of the text has serious problems, which we will see later. This chapter, though, was written for us because we are the New Testament people of God. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in the first century, he quotes Israel's ancient history, and he says these interesting words. Just listen to this, 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's written for us. The entire Old Testament is your scripture, if you're a Christian believer. It's written so that we will heed warnings, and so that we will stand firm in our faith, so that if we read this carefully in light of the whole Bible, we will find the resources to fight our giants. But those resources do not lie in us. I've got four points today, and I'm going to move at quite a quick pace. Firstly, Goliath's unstoppable force. Secondly, David's unlikely challenge. Thirdly, your unbeatable problem. And fourthly, Jesus, our ultimate champion. The unstoppable force, the unlikely challenge, the unbeatable problem, and the ultimate champion. Firstly, Goliath's unstoppable force. Now we pick up the story uh, towards the beginning, chapter 4. Sorry, chapter 17, verse 4 to 7, and we see this guy coming out uh, of the Philistine camp. And I really think the first thing we need to do here is address one thing that causes people to be skeptical, which is Goliath's height. Now, in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew um, measurements, he, he is six cubits and a span. And if you look in your footnote of the church Bible, that says it's about three meters, three meters tall. In old money, that's a little bit over nine feet. Nine feet tall. Now, there are some other ancient versions of the Bible, ancient translations, which use a different measurement for the cubit, and they come up with Goliath being nearly seven feet tall. So, first thing I want to point out here is that we're not talking about Jack and the giant beanstalk, and, you know, the giant's kind of 30 feet tall, that sort of fairy tale. We are actually talking about a very large man. The tallest man in recent recorded medical history was Robert Wadlow, an American who was born in 1918, and he grew to reach 8 feet 11 inches. 
So if the taller reading is correct for Goliath, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility, okay? Indeed, there's actually an elusive thread of evidence in the Old Testament that suggests there might have been an ancient line of people, an ancient genetic strain of very tall people who were descended from someone called Anak. But the main point here is that Israel is facing a giant, a, a very, very intimidating foe in the wilderness, and it is grave jeopardy. One reason why it is so serious is that the Philistines have got a sound system like with speakers like these, and they're playing a tune in the valley, and it's an Abba song. And the song is, the winner takes it all. The winner takes it all. You know, they say in history, the, the, the winners write history, and the losers write poetry. <laughs> now, of course, the Philistines aren't playing Abba, but, but Goliath's challenge is, is basically an Abba challenge. He says, come out and give me anyone, I'll take him. And whoever wins, will, 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 the whole war will be over. And if, if, if you win, then we'll all serve you, okay? But if I win, then you will be subject to us. And let me just say that the Philistines in the ancient Near East will not play by the rules of the Geneva Convention and be very nice if they gain control. It will be game over for Israel. Now, the location of this context reveals that the Philistines are already taking ground. They are deep into Israelite territory. It says in verse 1 that they're in Judah. Now, this means they're not on the, on the boundaries of the land. They're coming right into the heart. All the gains that have been made in capturing the promised land are now being reversed. The Israelites are losing it. They're losing their home. And historically, they had a poor track record of facing tall people. I love leading a meeting with Lana, by the way. It makes me feel tall. But, you know, I'm not really tall. And, and, and I see big, tall people. I can feel intimidated. That's often why prime ministers, presidents, world leaders, CEOs are often, if you notice, the, the, among the taller people. Now, the Israelites have got a poor track record of facing tall people. Back in the book of Numbers, uh, the story is told of how they came to the promised land. This was a slave nation. They'd been freed from Egypt. They'd been brought out by God's mighty hand through the Red Sea with signs and wonders and led in victory to the promised land that God was going to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they send uh, tw tw 12 spies to go and spy out the land. And these spies come back and they, they, they bring back stuff with them. But then they, 10 of them tell this real sob story. And they say, you know, we saw giants there, really big people. We can't do this. We can't take this land. They're absolutely terrified that they're going to get ripped apart. Only two of them were brave enough to say, no, no, God will give it to us. Those two were called Joshua and Caleb. Now, the result of that disbelief in God, because the entire nation chickened out, except for two people, they refused to go in and try and fight the giants. It was catastrophic. An entire generation was condemned to be nomadic tribespeople. They wandered the desert for 40 years until they died out. And only two people from that generation went into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Those wilderness wanderings lasted for 40 years. Did you notice how long Goliath carries on his challenge? Look at verse 16. How long is Goliath's challenge for? 
40 days. The number 40 is very significant in the Bible. Once again, it looks like God's ancient people, Israel, will fall in the wilderness to a giant who they can't defeat. That is Goliath's unstoppable force. And we notice the emphasis that's placed on his weapons and his armor. He's, he's wearing, got a bronze helmet on his head. He's got a coat of scale armor, which weighs probably about 120 pounds. He's absolutely tooled up. And he's got a, um, th- three kinds of um, weapons. He's got a javelin, which he can throw from a distance. He's got a spear, which he can use for stabbing. And he has an incredible sword that he can use for close combat. And he also has a guy carrying his shield for him, walking along in front. And out he comes, full of swagger. Now, that is an intimidating, unstoppable force. What will become of them? Well, the only hope they have is, is someone who's probably about 17 years old. David's unlikely challenge. Step forward, David. A slim, tanned, ruddy, handsome shepherd boy. Now, verses 12 to 23 introduce David, and they remind us of who he is and his family background, and they set the scene for this. David actually hasn't even been sent to the army to serve in the army. He's young. He's back home looking after the sheep. But his dad, whose name is Jesse, uh, gives him an errand to do. So every so often he sends him to the front line with food for the brothers, the three brothers who were serving there. And he also sends some cheeses for the commander. And he tries to find out news because, of course, Jesse is very worried and anxious about his three sons who were out there fighting, <laughs> supposedly fighting. They're not actually fighting at all. They're hiding in their tent. And it says in verse 24 that when Goliath came out... They all fled from him in great fear. There is nobody here who's going to stand up to Goliath. And they look around, and in verse 25 it says, Do you see this guy? I mean, seriously, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king, now this is what the king's decided to do. Listen to this, this reward money here. He will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll give him his daughter in marriage. And he'll exempt his family from taxes for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? You know, the king is pulling out all the stops. I'll make you rich, I'll give you my daughter, and I'll even let your family off taxes. I mean, there's so many incentives to come out and fight this guy, but nobody is taking him up on it. I mean, would you seriously go out in front of Goliath? I know I wouldn't. I know I wouldn't, if I'm honest. But David is different from you and me. In verse 26, we see the key thing, which is David's perspective, which is a perspective of faith. David says, who is this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, in David's perspective, the key thing is who's on your team. And God plus one is a majority in David's mind no matter what appears to be happening in front of him. Now, at this point, there's a tender family moment. David's oldest brother, Eliab, comes and sees him. He says, David, thanks so much for coming and bringing us that food. Really great to see you. I'm so glad Dad sent you. No, he doesn't say that at all. No, what he says, why have you come down here? And then he he really puts him down. With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I mean, that's just, just a put down, you know. You know what you do? You're a shepherd. You only have a few sheep, and they're in the wilderness. (laughs) 
But he's burning with anger. He's so he's indignant. I think he feels ashamed because David's walking tall and asking questions. Come on, what are we going to do about this? Now, word of this gets to Saul, the king. And there's a young chap out here with a spring in his step and a twinkle in his eye and fire in his heart. So Saul says, well, look, I haven't got many options here. You know, (laughs) I don't have many friends. Just send him in. Let's have a look at him. So David comes in. And Saul looks at him and he thinks, oh, right, we've got a right one here. (laughs) We've got a right one. I mean, this guy is a shepherd. He's probably about five foot four. You know, he's never fought in his, he's never even held a sword. What is he doing? But David steps up and he says, I'm your servant and I'll fight him. And Saul at first tries to give him a way out. He says, look, you're not going to do this. You're not going to go out and fight this Philistine. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David says, no, no, no. Just let, me t- let me tell you my CV. Okay, I'm a shepherd. But uh, we shepherds lead a hard life. You know, we sleep rough. We look after sheep. And sometimes they get attacked by wild beasts, even wild lions and bears. And there have been times where I've had to stand my ground in those kind of contexts. And I've overcome them in the wilderness. I've defended my flock. And more than any of that, this Philistine has defied God, the living God, the one true God, who is our covenant Lord. So he's on our team. David's theological perspective is what carries him through. Verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the bear, paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. See, it's primarily not about your technology, your weapons, your skill. It's about who's on your side. And David sees the unseen God. So Saul says, okay then. But Saul does something interesting. He immediately reaches for his armor. And David puts it on obediently and he tries walking around in it. And it's like a young guy who puts on his dad's suit. Have you ever seen that? You know, that suit and the arms are kind of down here. It's all too big and the trousers. And he just goes, I can't, I just can't wear this. So I'm going in like a shepherd. Puts his shepherd's stuff back on and a stick, you know, shepherd's crook. And he goes and he gets five smooth stones from the riverbed. Only needs one. But he gets five. And so out they come and here's the epic confrontation. And judging by appearances, there is no contest, is there? There is no contest. And Goliath is actually offended by this. What what are you doing here? You know, after 40 days, this is the best you can come up with. You're sending a boy out with a stick. Do you think I'm a dog? You're going to beat me? I'm going to eat him for breakfast. But David has faith in the Lord of hosts. And David's perspective once again comes out. Verse 45 and 46, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. So here we are. And we find out that he was equipped by God for the impossible task. So here we are, the unstoppable force and the unlikely challenge. Thirdly, your unbeatable problem. Now you might be sitting here and thinking, well, this is a nice story, but what does it mean for me? 
So what? Where is the real world cash value of this? What can I take away from this church service for Monday morning, for Wednesday afternoon, for Thursday night? Now remember, again, that these things were written down. They happened to Israel as examples. They were written down as warnings for us. So let's bring Goliath right into the room. Let's bring the gorilla into the room. I want to ask you, what is the thing or the person in your life right now that is defeating you? What is the thing or who is the person in your life that is defeating you? In other words, what is your unbeatable giant? Now, it might be a person. It might be someone who has power over you, like a boss or a workplace bully. It may be a hurtful, abusive relationship. It might be your dad. It could even be your mother. It could be another family member. It could be a friend who's betrayed you. What is the unbeatable giant? Now, your giant may be your circumstances. You're suffering for some reason. You're experiencing hardship. Or maybe a loved one is and you can't help them. You can't see any way out of it. You feel absolutely trapped. You're beaten by that giant. Or your giant may actually be internal. And maybe these are the hardest ones of all. The things about you, you know, those things about you that defeat you all the time. Your failure. You're such a failure. That's the voice. Your anxiety. Your despair. I want you to just picture that mean, vicious, powerful giant in your mind's eye. If it helps, put a face on top of a monstrous body. What is it? What is the unbeatable giant in your life? Do you believe it must beat you? Are you frightened? Are you tempted to despair? Are you defeated? Does your heart say, I'm destined to fail? I, I always end up losing. All right, now we've got him in the room, okay? We're face to face with our biggest problems. So what can we do about it? Where are we in the story? That's the key question. You still with me? Where are we in the story? Now, one way of reading this is to put myself in the story as David. I'm facing the giant, and I have to find the five smooth stones, and I have to walk up to Goliath and take him down. But that means it's all about me. It means I have to find the courage to fight my giants. And the problem is we can't do it. Now, this reading means you have to be your own Lord and Savior. Somehow you've got to find the resources deep down and the courage to save your life and the lives of those you love. Now, there's a phrase we have for people like this. We say they have a Messiah complex. You ever heard that? A Messiah complex. Such people can achieve a lot of good, but where does it lead in the end? Sooner or later, a Messiah complex will crush you and hurt the people around you because you're not that big. You just can't hold it all together. You can't control all the variables. 
And the more you try and control them, the more it slips through your fingers and sometimes the worse it gets. Now, that's the David option and I think we've ruled it out. Another option is to try and seek, to trust something else apart from David because he doesn't look that strong. In the story, this is Eliab, the older brother. The older brother, he looks at young David and frankly, he despises him. And the irony here is that the name Eliab in Hebrew means God is my father. <laughs> the one place Eliab refuses to look is to God, his father. There's another person who trusts something other than David and it's King Saul. And again, there's an irony here. Saul was chosen because the people wanted a king who was like the kings of the other nations. And Saul really looked the part because he was tall. He was, it says, head and shoulders above the other men. If you line them all up, Saul was clearly an impressive tall man. He was probably as close to a giant warrior that the Israelites could get. But where is he now in their moment of greatest need? He's cowering in his tent. And the exchange between Saul and David is fascinating because it reveals why. Did you notice Saul's strategy? As soon as David is going to go out, Saul reaches for his armor. The strategy is based on armor and weapons. He reaches for the armor, and this tells us that Saul shares Goliath's perspective on life. He thinks you, to become like a king like the nations, you have to dress like the nations and act like the nations and have the same stuff as the nations in order to defeat a warrior. Where is Saul's real strength and shield? In his armor. And it's no good. So where are we in the story if we're not David? Most likely, I think we are the Israelites. You and me, we're ordinary people who are facing extraordinary difficulties. We should be fighting, but we're hiding. And so what we need is a David. What we need is a David, or to be more precise, what we need is the Lord's anointed king, also known as Christ. That's what the story's telling us. So we've had three points so far. Goliath's unstoppable force, David's unlikely challenge, and your unbeatable problem. Finally, notice what the anointed king does. David walks up to the hulking champion Goliath. David is dressed as a shepherd and he's unarmed except for a sling. He's barely more than a boy, perhaps 17 years old. And he approaches Goliath, who is a walking arsenal. And I don't mean a North London football team. I mean an arsenal. And you think, we're all thinking, we've got nothing here. And not only is he going to get torn apart, but then we're going to lose everything. <laughs> and then in a flash, it's all over. A single stone from the sling smashes into Goliath's skull. He comes crashing to the ground. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And then you see David has got the Goliath sword and he's cutting his head off. I mean, this is just incredible. And he pulls the head up like this. And the Philistines see it and they turn and they run for the hills. The tables have been turned and we, the Israelites, we all charge forward in victory. And we get to take the plunder, it says. We get the benefits, the spoils. Because we're all victors because of what he did. You see that? 
What we see in the Valley of Elah is a miniature version of the victory of Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son. People had high hopes for Jesus as the Messiah, but he was arrested, framed, battered, led away to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He was stripped, whipped, humiliated, crucified, and abandoned. He looked like the weakest person in history. And yet, at that very moment, he was our representative. That's the great news of the gospel, is that Jesus on the cross was facing down the real giants of our lives, the giant of your sin, which you inherited from Adam and which you've indulged in every day of your life since you were born and which brings you under the condemnation and wrath of a holy God. That's a real giant. Jesus took it far away. The giant of death, the one thing that we all really will be afraid of when it comes, and we try and deny and not even think about it in this culture, if those who've lived all their lives in fear of death, Hebrews said, he set them free. And the spiritual giant of Satan, the Bible teaches there are spiritual forces that oppose people and try and keep them in darkness and sin and subjugation. Jesus Christ defeated Satan at the cross and at his resurrection. So the message of the Bible, just, just get this. This is a quote from uh, Tim Chester, wonderful, wonderful quote. The message of the Bible is not that we are called to save the world. Its message is that we have a saviour. The message of 1 Samuel is not that we are called to be like David. Its good news is that we have a David. And his name is Jesus. So when we are tempted to fear, to give up, to despair, to sin, we are not called to try and be like David. We are called to place our hope in the Christ who won the victory for us. We don't need a solution like the world around. We don't need to have everything figured out. We don't need to have all the resources. We don't need a king like the other nations. We don't need that kind of power. We need Jesus, our representative, who defeats our enemies. Now, how does it work? Boots on the ground. How does it work when we're faced with the giants in our lives? The everyday giants of suffering, failure, despair. How can I fight the giant of suffering unless I'm convinced that God has a greater purpose in it and he will use this suffering to refine me and make me more like Jesus. That God is in control even of my darkest moments and he will never let me go. That even when the cold waters of death close over my head, he will take my hand and raise me up on the last day. The cross and resurrection of Jesus prove these things, and that's where we must set our hope. How can I fight the giant of failure, which has dogged my steps every day of my life, unless I'm convinced that God cannot and will not abandon me? The cross of Jesus gives me the deepest security that I will overcome. How can I fight the giants of criticism and disapproval of other people unless I see that in the eyes of the most important person in the universe, I'm loved and accepted and adored? 
How could I fight the giant of despair without clinging to the promises of a greater rescuer, one who loved me and gave himself for me and one day will wipe away all my tears? It's a promise. One of the great books and uh, accounts of the Christian life was written by a man who suffered much for the cause of Jesus. His name was John Bunyan. He was a tinker in the county of Bedfordshire and he was uh, a, a dissenting preacher which meant that he was preaching outside of the law and he was actually imprisoned for some time because of it and suffered greatly. And, but while he was in prison, John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress in which he talks about the Christian life in the guise of an allegory uh, story with names so the main character's called Christian he has a friend called Hopeful and they get into all sorts of scrapes on their way to the celestial city on their way to heaven I want to just read a bit about um, one episode in this book that I read in the summer that really impacted me because it's about the giant despair giant despair Christian and Hopeful have got through one of their scrapes and they're really, really tired, so they take a shortcut. And it takes them through some territory, some fields where they shouldn't really have been going. But they're so tired, they lie down and sleep. And what they don't know is that they're actually in the, the land of this giant whose name is Despair. And he goes prowling around early in the morning and he finds them. And he, he captures them and takes them to his castle. And Despair locks them in a deep, dark dungeon where there's no daylight and there's no air and he gives them no food and no water for several days and they lie in a stinking dungeon absolutely abject and then he comes in and uh, shouts at them and berates them and then he gets a, a big whip and batters them until they can barely lie down because they're so sore of course this is what despair and depression does does to your heart doesn't it it captures you, takes you away from your friends, takes you into a dark place, batters you and leaves you without hope. And they're lying there and they're talking to each other and they're wondering what they're going to do. And then the giant comes back and he says, you need to take your own life now. It's better for you to die than live. And he goes away again. And Christian says, ah, you know, I think he might be right. I think I'm done. There is no way out. But Hopeful, living up to his name, says, well, just hang on a minute. You know, there must be something we can do. Is there anything we can do? And they're not sure. And then the giant comes back and he takes them out for a little walk and he shows them all the bones and the skulls of all the people he's destroyed before. And he says, you're going, you're going to end up like that. And he takes them back and locks them in the dungeon again. And it looks like it's all over. And then on Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray. And they continued in prayer, almost till break of day. Now, a little time before it was day, Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in his passionate speech. What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. And this key, I'm persuaded, will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news, good news, brother. Pluck it out and try it. So Christian pulls it out of his bosom and he begins to try at the dungeon door and the door, as he turns the key, gives back 
and flies open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both come out. They go to the outward door. They go to the castle yard. And the key opens that door too. And then they go to the iron gate. Very, very hard. And the lock was difficult, yet the key did open it. And then they thrust open the gate and they made their escape with speed. And they got out of Doubting Castle. They escaped from giant despair because they had a key called promise. Look, I know how hard it can be when you feel like you're just trapped in despair and darkness and there's no way out. But the only thing you can do is find a way of clinging to the promises of Jesus Christ and not trying to do it all on your own. And perhaps one way someone here needs to do that is just by sharing it with another Christian and praying with them. Jesus Christ is the king whom God has appointed to rescue his people. And he is sufficient to defeat the giants that threaten to destroy you. Go to him now. Take all your fears and unbelief and take them to him. And ask him to fill you with his spirit. To fill you with new courage. To give you a fresh confidence that he will carry you safe through every trial. Let's pray.